Hi, I'm Sarah from Bond Supermart, an online platform that provides you with information on bonds, transparent prices, tools, and research at your fingertips. Welcome to another episode of our podcast series where we share with you about new bond issues and hold discussions on the fixed income market. Today I have with me Ganageshwaran Arumugam, fixed income analyst from the Bond Supermart team at IFAS Malaysia. We're going to delve into Sukuk and discuss the 101s of it today. Hi Sarah, thank you for having me on your podcast. Uh, I think I probably should introduce myself before we get on with the show. So I'm better known as Ganages. I sit with the fixed income desk in Malaysia at IFAS Capital. As part of our regional fixed income team, we've got um, our teams across in Singapore and Hong Kong as well. So most of the work I do is around corporate credit issued from Malaysian issuers. So much of the work I cover is around the ringgit, ringgit space and most of this are Sukuk's. I uh, also look at USD papers that are also issued across Malaysian issuers. Great. Um, I'm really excited about this episode, actually. I remember it was just at the beginning of this year that I was asking for your thoughts right, about adding a Sukuk criteria to our bond selector tool. So I'm really happy that we have this episode for me to pick your brains about Sukuk. Ah, right. Yeah, much easier times when we weren't in a lockdown or at least not aware of what the pandemic was going to do. Um, but yeah, I remember talking to you about Suko at that time. Um, how is that going, by the way? Do you have a Suko button or filter on your website? Well, yeah, we got it up early in the year. And so now on our bond selector tool, users can actually filter between Suko or conventional to easily whittle down their bond choices better. So let's get down to it. Um, to begin with and to lay out the basics, could you tell us, what is Suku? Is it the same as being Sharia compliant? Okay, so you're not entirely wrong there, but it's more than just being Sharia compliant. Investopedia defines it as a bond-like financial product that complies with Islamic finance rules, or in other words, Sharia compliant. But um, it isn't exactly bond-like, since for a product to be Sharia compliant, it cannot have elements of interest or in in the Islamic finance world, it's something that we call as riba. Um which in essence is what a conventional bond is, right? If you think about it, like um, the coupons that you receive of a bond is based off interest. So this is not this is not allowed in Islamic finance. So I think the better definition of a suko is more like an asset-backed financial instrument where the purchaser of a suko has a profit-sharing agreement with the seller of a suko um, with respect to the cash flow that the very asset that the money is raised from the suko for. So I think that would be the better definition. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, on the profit sharing component that you mentioned, um, right, so we're looking at a very structured agreement where regardless of however much the cash flows increase or decrease, the owner of the suku um, will essentially be assured of a fixed rate, right? Because if it doesn't, then does it just sort of fall into equity territory? So I get where you're coming from. So, so, so I use profit sharing quite loosely here since there are sukus that are structured differently, right? So another way to think of it, again, loosely speaking, is it's like a business partnership. Not necessarily an equity partner, but like an interested stakeholder who still bears the risk of a loss in the business, but not necessarily the obligation that it's assuming that loss. So because if you're assuming the, the, the loss of the business itself, then yeah, that will make you an equity partner. But so in essence, what a sukru tries to achieve is to avoid the speculative nature of doing business. Um, so the sukru holder is still an invested person uh, in the very cash flow that the asset that the sukru has bought. So the cash flow to an investor is still fixed, much like a bond, but the nature of the business has to be identifiable. So that's what's 
that's what uh, sort of differentiates sukuk from a conventional bond. Right. So could you tell us then, um, you know, for, for a conventional bond, what are the elements that a bond must have for it to be considered sukuk? You know, like what differentiates it from a conventional bond? Um, so to point out the obvious, he has to be Sharia compliant. So no tobacco, no alcohol, no gambling related businesses. While for a conventional bond, they can practically do whatever they want with the money um, as long as it's raised through legal means. Um, and the other thing that I mentioned earlier is the profit sharing feature. So instead of a regular coupon, like what a conventional bond would give out, it's sort of a profit sharing um, agreement between the suku holder and the suku seller. So what this means is that money that is raised by suku has to be used for an identifiable asset and whatever money that this asset um, makes uh, or the cash flow that is uh, produced from this asset has to be profit shared from uh, among the suku holders. So let me give you an example so that I don't confuse all of, of our listeners. Um, say there's a certain highway operator that wants to raise a suku to build additional toll gates, right? So the suku holders, you could, you could say that they're interested partners in this additional toll gates. They're not really equity owners, but they're considered somewhat like a business partner, rightful owners of these toll gates. And whatever money that is collected from that very toll is to be distributed to the suku holders um, based on predetermined rates. So um, like, like I said, there, there's still a fixed rate element to it, but it has to come from the very cash flow that the asset that was bought using the suku. So like I've mentioned earlier, this makes it, it makes it more of like an asset-backed financial instrument rather than a debt-like security. Okay, well, I've always liked origin stories, um, as you might be able to tell in our previous episodes. So for today, I want to also understand about the origins of suku. You know, like how was the idea of suku actually conceived? Oh, wow. Okay. So, look, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm a uh, Islamic finance history expert. So, but what I understand though, um, suku evolved from the early trading days. And when I say trading, I mean the actual physical trading of goods like buying and selling breads, earrings, furnitures, and whatnot. Right. Um, so to raise capital, they they needed to raise something that gives out something like a bond. But like I mentioned earlier, interest and riba is not permitted at all in Islamic finance. So they had to come up with an instrument that is more Sharia compliant. And from what I understand, this is how Sukkot was conceived. Yeah. Um, but again, I'm no expert. So what I can talk about, though, is closer to modern times. Um, the first corporate Sukkot was issued out of Malaysia, right here in Malaysia, um, in the early 90s by a company called Shell MDS. Um, the issuance was uh, up to $125 million. But 90s wasn't exactly the, the, the greatest era of Suku. Um, 2000s was when things really took off. So from then on, Suku issues have, have grown leaps and bounds with um, issuers' preferences slowly moving towards Suku. So the taste of these issues are also shifting. So when I say taste, preference, what do I mean by this? Let, let me give you an example, right? So back in the day, when sukkot was just introduced, when it was just taking off, um, much of the preference was to to raise long term. So maybe five to seven years. I borrow your money for five to seven years, or even up to ten. But but right now we we we're seeing an uptick in terms of short to medium term sukkots um, being issued by companies. So what this tells you is they're happy to tap into the sukkot market instead of going to the bank for their working capital. Another trend that I can point out is. Um, Generally speaking, when you think about suku, you think about this being issued out of what we assume as traditional Islamic countries, right? But let me give you an example that I can think of. Last year, for the first time ever, suku was issued out of Taiwan. So Taiwan isn't exactly 
an Islamic country or associated with the Middle East. But the fact that they came out with a sukulas, it kind of gives you an idea of where this direction is going. So it gives you an idea of um, the taste of international investors in, in terms of suku. So I hope I kind of answered your question of origin. I think I went on and on. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. No, but okay, now I have more questions, um, especially the part about Taiwan issuing a suku. Um, I want to know, so was the suku well received? Um, and, and do you know why they were so compelled to issue a suku? I mean, because that, that was really surprising for me. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I was surprised when I first found out too. So, so Taiwan's debut in the suku market is really down to some tweaking in the regulations done in 2019, so last year. Uh, much of this was done by the Supervisory Commission and the Taipei Exchange. So in essence, what really happened is it was done to allow more professional investors with diversified products and um, also to facilitate some foreign issues in Taiwan's capital market. And the truth is, Taiwan has always been a place where investors are really a fan of the credit profile of Middle Eastern issuers. So, I mean, what better way to get exposure than to issue suku in Taiwan, right? So that's that's what essentially what they did last year. Oh. Well, I'm glad to hear that it's actually growing across the globe. Um, so, okay, globally, could you tell us how much of the outstanding bond issues are actually suku? Well, the truth is, suku is actually a relatively small segment of the fixed income market globally. I mean, it has grown in leaps and bounds in terms of issuances and whatnot. But I mean, as a percentage, it's not even 1% of the total fixed income market. I mean, that being said, though, there has been an increase of uh, suku issuance over the years. Like I just pointed out, Taiwan being a country that we would normally not associate with Islamic finance, but they just came out with a suku. Um, the bulk of the suku market is still in Malaysia. Um, so Malaysia covers about 50% of the issuances, and most of the suku issuers in Malaysia are of quasi-government institutions as well as um, corporate players. So... Apart from us, our neighbor Indonesia is also a large suku issuer. Um, the reason COVID-19 bond, I think, is also a suku. And of course, then you have your Middle Eastern players like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, and Kuwait. So yeah, so this is how, loosely speaking, the map of suku looks like. Um, well, so with this, do you foresee suku actually growing in the coming years? So I think, like every other financial instrument, the only real clarity on suku can only be seen once this whole COVID-19 thing sorts itself out, if I'm being completely honest with you. I mean, things are getting better now for sure. More economies are opening up. I don't see a lot of economies uh, in a lockdown. I don't see a lot of countries are in a lockdown. Sure, there's one or two. Um, but they are still... The, the thing is, there's still cause for caution around the world about a second wave. So business confidence isn't exactly great at the moment. Um, companies aren't exactly excited to fund new projects. They, they, they're not exactly excited to fund new capital expenditures. So the fact that there's a lack of capital spending by these companies means that there's really no need to raise money. So the fact that there's no need to raise money uh, means that suku issuance aren't going to be where it was pre-pandemic. So... Just to give our listeners an idea of where the suku market has been, 2019 was actually the highest uh, in, in total global suku issuance at 145 billion USD. Um, and this trend has been going upwards since 2015. So, I mean, if you ask me where do I see this going, I foresee this trend going forward once we've moved past this virus. Um, but given that things are still very bleak at the moment, when I say very bleak, I'm talking about the virus itself and in terms of um, how this entire thing is going to play out. So I heavily doubt that to, um, this year's numbers will surpass last year's numbers. 
that's only because we are in a pandemic. It says nothing about Suko on its own, but it just it speaks volumes about what this this pandemic has done to our economy. Right. Um. Another question that I have is that you know, with the growth of Suku, are there governments who are trying to support um, the issuance of Suku with any like, let's say, additional monetary support? Um, it's interesting that you brought this up now, since we and when I say we, I mean the Malaysian government. So we've actually recently issued a Suku called Suku Prihatin. That essentially is a suku that's raised um, to help with this whole COVID nineteen situation. So, a bit of background information about this suku um, is five hundred million ringgit in nominal value with a profit rate of two percent. So, this suku is geared towards helping small businesses, micro businesses, SMEs in dealing with the the economic impact that these businesses are facing. Um, so, I guess in terms of help, I guess one way that the government is actually stepping in with with respect to this very bond is that. So non-financial institutions who are who aren't in the business of fund management. So think about um, your regular companies, the companies that provide you electricity, or the company, a company that buys furniture. So if they buy the suko, they are given a tax break. So I guess that's one way of thinking about it. Um, that's that's here in Malaysia. Um, in Indonesia, that is that it's something similar, raising up to USD two point five billion in June to help the government battle with the coronavirus. Um, adding on to previous issuance from earlier this year, which included a fifty year bond, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, so just to give you an idea of what the global appetite for suku is, um, this suku that was issued um, in two point five billion USD was oversubscribed by close to seven times its target. So what I mean by this is right, they were just looking to raise two point five billion USD, but the bids or the orders that came in um, totaled to close to seventeen billion USD. So you can see sort of the international response and the appetite for the suku. So, gonna guess. So, since you're based in Malaysia, right? Would you say that sukuk are actually very commonplace? Are they very important if an issuer wants to raise debt in the country? Okay, fun fact, or actually all facts. Um, the sukuk market in Malaysia is actually close to four times bigger than that of a conventional bond market. So, let me explain what I mean by that. And I'm using data of uh, November two thousand nineteen. These are later available ones, of course. So, bear with me. Um, but as of late last year, the total corporate suku outstanding is about five hundred fifty-five billion ringgit. So, um, and you compare that with the conventional bond market, which is only like one hundred forty-five billion. So you can see how big this market is. Um, is it a commonplace? Sure. I mean, we are the biggest suku market in the world, so that's an easy one to answer. But is it important? Um, so that's a hard one. I mean, there are tax benefits to an issuer, but from a retail investor point of view, and I talked to quite a bit of them. It's quite minimal. The impact is quite minimal, and if I'm being completely honest with you, um, most of them that I speak to, all that matters to an investor is yield. So that's a whole another angle that we could look at. But but yeah, just by pure size, it is a commonplace. Almost all the issues that I look at are sukos in the ringgit space. Um, especially if I take last year as my yardstick, um, most of it came from the construction sector, property development. Most of it was sukos. Um, so with that, I have an important question um, that I know investors will definitely ask. How would you compare the yields for sukuk and conventional bonds? Okay, this... I mean, it's something I want to know as well. Oh, fair, fair. I mean, these are these are common questions that I get from retail investors as well. Um, so this might throw you off a little, since we spent a lot of time just talking about the sukuk market. I have told you what the difference is in terms of the conventional bond market, but. 
So this truth is going to hurt you a little bit and probably our investors. But the truth is there is little difference in terms of yields for suku and conventional bonds. But allow me to explain why this is the case, right? Um, first, you've got to think about how you price a bond to begin with. Um, it's always risk-free plus spread. So what do I mean by risk-free? So um, to give you a more concrete example, and the example is concrete, but the numbers are not concrete. So please do not quote me on the numbers. So let's just say you put your money in a fixed deposit. Uh, for one year let's say the bank gives you 3% that money is guaranteed at the end of this one year you'll get your principal back with that additional 3% so that is what I mean by risk free say so now you say mm, 3% that's not enough for me I want to I wanna, I wanna get 5% so that 5% that additional 2% that you're taking on that's what I call a spread that spread is that compensation that you get for taking on more risk right so that's a very that's a very uh, loose example. Why I say loose is because your fixed deposit is isn't exactly risk free. It comes with banking risk. So a more formal way of you, you uh, how assets are priced is the real risk free rate is actually your government security, right? So for for a Malaysian bond, we use the Malaysian government securities. Um, so uh, it's also known as MGS. So we use that as our risk free, and for our suku, we use uh, GII. So why are bonds and suku priced the same? The reason is simple. GII and MGS are very, very closely priced to each other. So think about it this way, right? Say I come up with a company. I sell furniture, for example. Um, let's call it company X. So on my right hand, I issue a corporate bond. And on my left hand, I issue a suku. Now, you're taking on the same risk in investing into my company. So let's say my company's risk means that you get an additional spread of 5%, right? It's the same. It's the same company, whether it's a suku, whether it's a bond, you're still taking on the same risk. It's still a 5% spread. Now, let's say if I use a conventional bond, you'll take the yields under MGS plus that 5% spread, and then you'll get your yield. It's the same with um, suku as well. You take the GII yield, and then you plus that 5%. So the fact that GII and MGS is very close to each other means that the yields are actually quite similar to each other. Right, yeah. So you see, I, I asked this because, and um, please don't take this the wrong way, but um, I have heard and I've come across some opinions that were raised about how um, the concept of, you know, do-good bonds, be it sukuk or ESG bonds, it, um, typically come across as being more attractive because of um, the marketing appeal. And some people might also feel that, you know, because the universe is then limited, hence the returns of the bonds or suku may be limited as well. Um, not necessarily. So, well, it does limit the number of available options as, uh, that you have. I mean, it does shrink the available investable universe, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're restricted to limited returns. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, you will be compensated for the risk that you assume, fairly, hopefully, in that spread that I just mentioned, right? I mean, yeah, you can't um, invest in tobacco, you can't invest in gambling, all this stuff, so it, it reduces your investable uni- universe. But at the end of the day, they are still... Uh, what a sukut does, it, it just eliminates the speculative aspect of the way business is done, but it doesn't totally eliminate risk per se. So for as long as there is a certain amount of risk, there'll still be spread. So for example, like I mentioned earlier, um, there is an online gas issuer that is that has a suku outstanding, right? Um, you can buy and sell the suku. Right now, it is actually from the last the, the last um, price that I've checked, it's giving about fourteen to fifteen percent in yield. So 
that is that represents quite a bit of spread um, because the oil segment is not doing as well as we all expected um, again due to the coronavirus but and it's a suku does that mean that your your yields are not attractive i think that's a fairly attractive yield it's just that it limits your universe uh, of investment but in terms of uh, returns nah i think it's still very much out there Okay, I have so many more questions, but we really need to wrap up now. So before we go, do you have three fun facts about Sukuk that you can share with us? Or just three facts? Okay, wow. <laughs> three. Uh, okay, let me see if I can think any at the top of my head right now. Okay, so the first one may be in 2019. Uh, 2019, the Saudi government financed over about 50%, over 50% of its fiscal deficit um, through Sukuk issuances. Um the second one would be the semi annual payments that usually what a conventional bond would term as a coupon. Uh, in Suko, there's no such thing as a coupon, like I mentioned. Um, Reba or interest is not allowed, so they call it profit rates. Um, and the last one, okay, there's actually more than one type of Suko. So um, these are basically structured based on the principles, the underlying principles. Um, Mudaraba and Muharaba are just a few just to name. So those are three fun facts, I guess. All right, I got it. So thank you for joining us today, Ganagas. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you. This was brought to you by Bond Supermart. I'm Sarah Chia, and our guest analyst with us today is Ganagas Warren, Arumugam from the Bond Supermart team at IFAS Malaysia. Follow Bond Supermart on Twitter, Facebook, and Telegram to get first-hand updates on new bond issues, credit updates, and special events. For bond information and articles, visit our website, bondsupermart.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.